the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Hello, and welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. My name is Lawrence Poole, and I'm your host. This is the first episode, and it's called 4.5 Billion Years of Success. With that number, I'm referring to the time it took for cosmic dust to amass and solidify itself into this incredible planet we all live on. Throughout this presentation, I'll explain how nature's success is based on a process wherein creative leaders emerge and show the way forward. I'll tell you how this emergence is favored by nature's rules and laws, and I'll share some of the deep wisdom I've learned in the jungles of Central America. This wisdom can benefit both our life in the social jungles, that is, the industrialized cities where most of us maintain our relationships, and of course, in the business jungle. Whether you run a startup, a mom-and-pop shop, or you're slaving for a corporate giant like IBM, You're part of the global marketplace, and it's a jungle out there. A successful life requires conscious participation, even a concentrated leadership. When I started thinking about nature's success, I looked for conditions that contribute to it. Nature's management laws are universal. That is to say, they apply to everything and everyone all the time. There are no exceptions. I thought that processes that are particularly well-managed in tropical jungles can easily serve as models in the social and business jungles. I figured that it was in my own best interest to learn nature's laws and to then incorporate them into my life. Let me share 10 conditions I found that apply to all of us and how we can profit from managing them nature's way. The first condition is that nature manages a transformative process that has lasted for billions of years and isn't done yet. In this expanding universe, even if individuals might enjoy a very short lifespan, continuous change replaces every single piece so that the whole of nature is continuous. In this sense, nature is the world's best management school. Consider how it manages a very complex process made up of infinite numbers as a single continuum of change. Change is the constant. How people react to it marks the differences between us. Do you champion change in an adventure, or do you see it with fear and loathing? Successfully managing change happens to be a major human failing. At best, statistics reveal that a company's chance of reaching its intended results in a planned change, like a merger or an acquisition, is at best 50-50. In fact, study after study shows that the failure rate is closer to 70-90%. to Yet change is the only constant. Species live and die. Businesses are acquired and sold. Employees come and go. Technology, procedures, systems, processes, laws, these are constantly being reinvented. And all of this change brings disruption to the way in which people live and work. So why is our failure rate at managing change so high? Well, research tells us that the human factor is the leading cause for failure. The good news is that nature offers us a huge repository of lessons on how it manages change, and we can learn from them. If we look carefully, there's a lot to learn from in the jungle. For example, leaders in the jungle see change as an opportunity. In science, 
The principle of horror vacui explains that nature hates a vacuum. This observation is first attributed to Aristotle, who noted that nature immediately fills the rarity of any void with something new. He saw that nature is managing a process of continuous transformation by adapting to a change in conditions, and nature uses every opportunity to improve itself. Most people would profit from learning to see change as an opportunity. I'll share with you how I greeted very drastic changes in my life that way. I forced myself to look for opportunities where I could refocus my energy so as to experience joy and passion. It's the best choice I ever made. I made dozens of small changes that added up to something larger. For example, before the accident that put me in a wheelchair, I was a fervent squash player. After, I got into wheelchair basketball instead. The sporting aspect was the same. Both gave me camaraderie, exercise, sweat, competition. All of it was fun, but I didn't compare them. I just replaced one with the other. I didn't give any thought to what I'd lost or what I no longer could do. Instead, I focused my energy on doing the best I could with what I had. Nature favors adaptability. A second of the ten conditions I explored in the jungle is that nature also favors diversity. I mentioned in the intro to this podcast that an estimated 10 million species of flora and fauna exist on this planet right now. Many, many others have roamed the earth before now. Nature favors diversity for a very good reason. Simply put, if every tree in the forest was an apple tree, any apple tree disease could wipe them all out. As we have it, about 60,000 species of tree are on this earth, and if an apple tree is ever in danger, a great many other kinds of tree will survive. One of them might even know the cure for ailing apple trees. And as there are about 7,500 species of apple tree, maybe all the apples won't be wiped out. Diversity is strength. So whenever I hear some racist rant or see a xenophobic attitude or intolerance, I just don't get it. Nowadays, because they must deal in a global marketplace, nations and corporations have embraced social diversity. So we'd all profit to learn how nature manages it. The idea is not to ignore or erase the differences between us, but rather to understand and celebrate them. We can profit from our differences. I also learned that the jungle succeeds by managing a ferocious competition. Imagine a tiny country like Costa Rica, you can drive clear across it in a few hours, has one half million species of flora and fauna competing for the same territory, often for the same resources. What lessons can we learn that apply to our social jungles, where we compete for housing, food, jobs, mates? What lessons apply to the business jungle, where market conditions, perks, and power are all up for grabs? In a future episode, I'll explain nine management principles that govern nature's complex systems. In short, they compel individuals to empower themselves to obey its survive and prosper law. As simple as that law might seem, I'll share with you that 99.99% of all the species that ever existed on this earth are extinct today because they couldn't do it. They couldn't adapt to new conditions. They faltered because of, well, continuous change, awesome diversity, ferocious competition, just to name a few conditions. The survivors are us, today's leaders. To understand this, you have to know that in the jungle, leadership is fundamentally different than it is in human affairs. And this for a simple reason. In the jungle, there are no followers. In nature, management doesn't work in a boss-slash-employee kind of way. So then, what is leadership? Where do leaders come from? Are leaders born 
or do we learn how to do it? Well, in nature, leaders are the first to adapt to new conditions. If their adaptation works, if it's successful, then others will copy whatever it is. Leaders are then people who influence others to do the right thing. Leadership is situational. If a leader makes the right choice, then he or she leads. If you guess wrong, then you're lunch. Nature's law is simple, survive and prosper. So its judgment is easy to understand. Pass slash pass not. In other words, adapt or die. At one point in my research, I want to learn how societies succeed. So I studied the world of ants for a while. Thanks to biologist and Pulitzer Prize winner Edward O. Wilson, there are many scholarly papers to draw from. I appreciated learning that without their labor over the last 150 million years or so, the soil we need to grow our veggies wouldn't exist. Because of the spin of the planet and the force of gravity, dust, decay, and debris would be compacted as dense as concrete. Ants dig into this mass, turn, and aerate the soil. This allows water and oxygen to reach deep where plants can root. Also, ants eat a wide variety of organic material and then scatter seeds. These sprout and grow into new plants. Thanks to this seed dispersal, they provide food to a great many other organisms. And as if that isn't enough, I was amazed to discover that ant cooperation comes from their superior communication skills. Ant live in colonies that can range in size from a few dozen individuals who might take residence in a small cavity in a wall somewhere to highly organized groups consisting of millions of individuals in large territories. The larger colonies will have a wide variety of ant kinds, from wingless female workers to male soldiers to specialized sorts, like leaf cutters, toxin tasters, aphid farmers, and fighter pilots. No one tells individual ants what to do. An ant colony is described as a superorganism because it thinks as a unified whole. That is, individual members communicate in support of the whole colony. The term superorganism describes any social unit where members come together as a larger entity because individuals are not able to survive alone for an extended period of time. The larger entity communicates group needs and defines the skilled labor required to fill it. We can extend our notion of superorganism to include job sites, factories, gangs, societies, and all kinds of groups. And then we could learn how to successfully manage the dynamic. Ant colonies communicate their needs by secreting pheromones, that is, chemical scents that trigger a response in the recipients. Ants will secrete scent messages that are received as alarm pheromones, or food trail pheromones, or sex pheromones, and several other kinds. This form of communications allows the colony to influence the behavior of individuals. It will track team members, communicate the needs, and invite individuals to adapt to them. Organizations like Federal Express and the Post Office now use the same approach to track packages for delivery. Instead of pheromones, they use electronic devices, but they know where every package is every instant of the way that it's in their care. And society has survived millions of years because of what they know about collective thinking, communications, and cooperation. There is so much that we humans can learn from them. Another of those ten conditions I found in nature is the stunning amount of creativity and innovation in the jungle. So I know that they are also component parts of nature's success. Species can access a larger collective intelligence. I can give you hundreds of examples, but let me tell you about just one, called the fly orchid. If you do a Google search, 
you can find all kinds of images that'll show you where that name comes from. This plant's flower looks exactly like a housefly. I don't mean a little bit. I mean the flower looks exactly like a common fly. Not only that, but it smells like a female fly in heat. That plant uses floral mimicry and a remarkably creative strategy called sexually deceptive pollination. The fly orchid has developed a relationship with two kinds of insects who have become the plant's pollinators. The scent that is released by this flower exactly mimics the sexual pheromones of this female insect. That orchid uses its aroma to attract males who jump the flower and pollinate it by trying to mate. I mean, wow, that plant was thinking outside the box. Imagine the creativity involved for a plant to discover that it can't depend on the wind to propagate its pollen and to then decide to totally transform itself, its look and even its smell in order to obey nature's survive and prosper law. Where do you suppose it got that idea? What can we learn here? Another condition for success is the incredible tenacity that's displayed by so many species. I have a picture that Susie took of me sitting at the very edge of the crater of Irazu Volcano. We were at 3,700 meters altitude and it was freezing up there. And even if Irazu Volcano was in Costa Rica, I felt like it was on a moonscape. Everything was covered in gray ash and we could smell sulfur fumes rising out of the hole. After Susie snapped the picture, I moved away from the crater and then I saw a single yellow flower growing near the volcano's rim. I wheeled over to get close and I was amazed to see a very thin green stem growing out of the ash. Delicate, frail, it was holding its flower petals and resisting the cold, harsh wind. Wow, I thought, it really ain't over till it's over. I was very impressed with something that fragile, holding on with such strength and tenacity. I realized then that answering nature's law has less to do with how we think or what we believe. It's largely about tenacity. It's all about the doings and not doings needed to survive and prosper. Nature expects every individual to make the effort. Success requires a lot more can-do than IQ. I also found a tremendous team spirit involved in nature's success. There are so many examples of how very different species come together to work as teams. You've all seen those small white birds that perch on tops of large animals grazing in the fields. They always seem at risk of being trampled under the cattle hooves. Egrets and cattles are such different animals that they really shouldn't be partners, but they bonded in mutual care relationships. Mutualism describes the interaction between two or more species where each will receive a net benefit from the relationship. Egrets clean parasites off of cattle bodies and warn them about predators. In return, cattle shake up the grass and dirt and raise insects for egrets to feed on. I think we'd all profit from this kind of help from teammates. Real cooperation between departments or a devotion from business and life partners. Well, you can foster success by building mutualistic relationships with others. Bees give us a good example of this. A hive might consist of up to 60,000 individual bees. But did you know that each of them is valued for doing an important job that contributes to the overall success of the hive? Bees don't play politics. They see the hive as a single unit, their organizational structure. It's very simple and an effective way to delegate work. That's all it does. There is no management hierarchy involved. No boss slash employee structure. Bees are self-empowered, and this is critical to their high productivity and success. 
Lesson learned? Whether you're a family business or a giant corporation, make sure the work is delegated honestly and efficiently among all the team members. According to their skills, according to their training and their abilities, make sure that everyone knows how important his contribution is to the whole and how much he's appreciated. We can consider wolves as good team players. Quite different from bees who hive think wolves are, above all else, individuals who live in tightly knit packs with strict control of social ranks. Wolf populations consist of a family unit with some lone wolves who temporarily live in the pack's periphery until they form their own family units. To label a wolf an alpha emphasizes a dominance hierarchy that's a myth. In wolf packs, alpha males and females are the parents of the pack, its guides. In order to survive and prosper, wolf teams communicate to solve two kinds of problems. How to find prey and how to confront it. During times of abundance, when the prey is birthing or migrating, different packs may join together and temporarily work as a larger team. This forces wolves to become expert communicators, as they will have to communicate strategy, what a prey might do next, and how to respond. Wolf communications includes vocal sounds, body postures, scent, touch, nips, and bites. Leaders also use gazing and nodding to focus the team's attention on where to look and how to look at prey and how to move towards it. Gazing and nodding are important skills because wolves don't use vocal sounds when they're hunting. This silent form of communications gives them the appearance of having intuition. In fact, laboratory tests show that wolves do exhibit both insight and foresight. They also have the ability to plan and communicate those plans to others. We humans can learn a lot from wolves about team communications. We know that friendly good humor works when solving problems, that encouraging employees to get to know each other better creates strong social bonds, and these all contribute to successful teams. Yet, it isn't always a natural part of management culture. Another condition I explored is how nature's success stems from a very efficient use of resources. In the jungle, nothing is wasted. Even plant scraps are composted. Nature's lessons for us is that she favors the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Whether you're building a home, launching a high-tech company, or looking for a new car, nature tells us that to tap into the financial benefits of good management. An example can be found with the recycling practices of the hermit crab. This tiny crustacean has a long, soft, but also delicious body, and so it has many predators. To protect itself, it salvages empty snail shells, crawls inside of them to where its body can retract safe and sound. And as it grows, it upgrades its armor by moving into larger and larger shells. Have you outgrown a dress or a jacket like the one you wore to the prom? Well, that doesn't mean someone else won't benefit from your used clothes. Consider how you can reduce financial stress by practicing voluntary simplicity. This is opposed to being prey to mindless consumerism. Not to say we shouldn't enjoy nice things. In the animal kingdom, many species, like the bowerbird, for example, decorate their homes in very creative ways. Bowerbirds intend to lure a mate, and having a flashy home increases its likelihood of being selected as a partner. The male bowerbird will create a very attractive and very elaborate nest. He'll decorate it by recycling objects like brightly colored plastics, tinfoil, coins, buttons, shiny rocks, and shells. If the decor attracts a female to his crib, well then, if he can entice her to stay for a while, okay, then he can mate with her and thereby prosper. Showcasing his recycling skills, he demonstrates good personal values, an attractive feature. Mother Nature is thus telling us to explore our immediate surroundings 
and to efficiently use its resources. This parsimony shows us how to save energy in several different ways. New resources are not depleted. Energy is not wasted to produce new products. The energy footprint caused by transport and distribution is minimized. Caring for your immediate surroundings means learning to value the beneficial relationships that assure your ongoing success. Also, by being dedicated to smart ideas, much like bowerbirds, you show others that you can be smart and sexy. And who doesn't want a reputation like that? The most exciting idea I've found so far, though, that most significantly contributes to nature's success is called biomimicry. In the jungle, species learn by observing others and copying them. In business circles, this is called best practices. The lesson learned is that before looking to reinvent the wheel, we should do a quick Google search to see what the best wheels look like right now. If we start with those best ideas, then we can work to make them better. I think that's our saving grace. We can improve. We can change for the better. In order to lead better lives, we have to start with the very best ideas and then just do them a little bit better. We can do better. I learned that lesson when I needed it most. You know, trekking jungles in a wheelchair is not an obvious career choice. Let me tell you a little bit about what led me to make that decision. In August 1977, I was forced to change my way of thinking. I had a tragic car accident when I was 29 years old, and it crippled me. At the time, I was married and a father. I had a great career in sales and marketing. But my life changed in an instant when I hydroplaned my car one night and hit a pole on the Trans-Canada Highway at 70 miles an hour, 110 clicks. Very badly broken, I was brought to a local hospital, DOA, dead on arrival. Later, but now alive, I was transferred to the Montreal Neurological Institute Trauma Center, where they were the best equipped to handle the heavy load that I'd just become. Still, in the ordeal, I was thought dead four times, spent six weeks in the intensive care unit on a respirator, was in the hospital for 11 months, and was totally paralyzed from the chest down. I can admit that when I first learned that I was to spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, I cried. Even if I was six foot four and weighed 200 pounds, I was a fervent sportsman and I loved life. I was left in my tears with my nurses And deep within, I heard my father's voice speaking to me. He said, we don't cry over spilled milk. We clean it up and carry on. He often said that, and now it really helped me. I stopped crying and I decided to carry on. My convalescence took me a few years. I had to overcome all kinds of damage and hardships, including being jobless and now financially destitute. It was a hell of a ride, but having been dead and now back to life to talk about it, you can imagine that that was a huge game changer. Later, out of intensive care, I remembered something else my father often repeated. At one point in his career, he was in law enforcement with the federal government, and he was often at risk and in danger. We worried about him, but if one of us said anything about it, he'd smile and say, Don't you worry, God's my friend. He repeated it often enough that one day, still very young, I asked him, is God my friend too? He got very serious and answered me in no uncertain terms. Yes, yes he is, he most certainly is. God is your friend and you can be sure of it by being his friend too. If you act with the idea of good, you'll always have a friend to help you, to rely on to sort things out. I liked his answer and I accepted it totally. And in all the years of my life, I'm now 72, I've never had an occasion to doubt it. 
When I questioned him about his views about God, though, he'd good-naturedly answer, if you want to know more about God, study the laws of nature. So there, in my room at the Neurological Institute, I decided to study nature. I had no idea where to start, but I made an appointment with destiny. In this series of podcasts, woven into my springboard stories about nature, I'll tell you about my travels to incredible wilderness areas, from Gander, Newfoundland to Victoria, B.C., from the Great White North in Quebec's James Bay and the Peace River near Alaska, all the way south to Panama. I'll recount some of my adventures in the political and business jungles of Canada, too, just to tell you a little bit about what I've learned about living an empowered life. I discovered that nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. That number is the time it took for this biosphere to emerge and for all of life as we know it to evolve. About four billion years ago, a sort of algae appeared, and then various soft-bodied creatures followed it out of the primordial soup. Organic molecules bubbled up from Earth's core and joined together. About three billion years passed, and the first vertebrate species were formed. And 300 million years after that, reptiles and dinosaurs appeared. A hundred million years after that came the warm-blooded mammals. And then 65 million years ago, a first hominid. Jump all those millions of years to a time named the Holocene to meet Homo sapiens. Us, our ancestors, that is. We were called the wise man. We are a new species. And we first began to organize and civilize the earth about 450,000 to 500,000 years ago. We may be new to this earth, but we've had a real impact since our first appearance. In our race to get ahead, to survive and prosper, I think we fell away from nature's plan. Well, folks, let me say that we can vote politically in any way we want, but we can't break nature's laws, even if we can break ourselves against them. You may think that you're free to do as your ego suggests, but in the jungle, there's a name for individuals who work against the general good. We call them lunch. Some of nature's rules deals with the jungle as a predatory prey environment. We can try to feel secure by imagining that we are protected by our leaders or by our government, but we're only kidding ourselves. Any thought that man might be the ultimate predator on this planet vanishes real quick when you're in the jungle. There's a great television show produced by the Discovery Channel called Naked and Afraid. It'll show you that even the bravest of people are humbled by the jungle. The idea that we are a super predator is just plain wrong. And our reaction to the near-invisible coronavirus will show that. We are a fragile part of nature's fabric and we easily fall prey to a whole slew of invisible predators. Nature recognizes four kinds of predation in the jungle. We call them carnivore, herbivore, parasite, and mutualist. These define the flow of energy between predator and prey. In the interaction, the prey loses energy, and the predator gains energy. The first three carnivore, herbivore, and parasite are relationships where the interaction can result in the death of its prey. Before taking sides, you should know that nature's intent is that both predator and prey should benefit from the relationship. Prey has to become more creative in order to survive predation. Predators have to become more creative to assure they continue to have prey. Also, predators cull the old the injured, the sick, and the very young. This leaves more resources for healthy animals. Nature's strategy is to control the size of populations and slow the spread of disease, to thus keep the whole system healthy. Mutualist relationships are those interactions where the result has a beneficial effect on both the predator and the prey. In future podcasts, I'll explain how nature expects individuals and organizations to thrive in spite of our many challenges, difficulties, or disabilities. I'll explain the jungle's key management strategy as altruistic self-interest. 
I learned three things by hitting a pole at 70 miles an hour. The first thing is that metal to metal, a car stops real quick. In less than a nanosecond, my whole life flashed before me. I saw my time on Earth pass in the fraction of an instant. The second thing I learned is that anything or anyone inside the car does not stop. It gets stopped. In my case, I was stopped by a steering wheel. It crushed my chest. It fractured all my ribs on my left side, and they tore into my lungs. It also broke my sternum, my clavicle, my spine, my left arm, my right hip. If you'll imagine that my body was covered in cuts, scrapes, and bruises, and that I suffered considerable amounts of internal damage. The third thing I learned is that human beings are very fragile. We break easily, and we suffer great pain. But did you know you can't feel more pain than you can endure? As soon as it's too much, you'll pass out. The brain floods the system with soothing chemicals. How intelligent is that? If you are suffering, it's because you haven't reached your pain limits. In my case, complete paralysis resulted from a spinal cord injury. My spine was crushed at the T4 level, chest high. And because of all the inner damage, I left the hospital 11 months later with the prognosis for a life expectancy of five to seven years. Well, they weren't far off. In the 40 plus years since then, I've been hospitalized so many times I've lost count. It's always one emergency or another. In a recent example, my descending heart valve became completely blocked by blood platelets that had diligently been trying to repair damage to it that had been going on for years. The doctors transplanted a new one well, that caused a series of other challenges, and it took five more operations to repair them. And of course, that meant several years of convalescence. But I can tell you that in spite of the huge ordeal, including my death experiences and all the time I've spent in hospital, the prognosis for my early demise was exaggerated. It ain't over till it's over. With nothing to do except lie in the hospital bed and think, I needed to create another karma for myself. I ventured within to figure out what had given me the most joy until the moment of impact in that near-fatal accident. What had given me happiness? I seriously thought about it and started a list. Then one day, it all came together. I realized everything that gave me joy in my life was related to nature. I'd been an avid camper and fisherman. I loved to ski. I loved to explore the great Canadian forests as soon as the snows melted. I'm an amateur photographer, a herbalist, a gardener. I knew that I had to get myself back into nature as soon as I could. Of course, you have to understand that back then it was a bit of a stretch. I couldn't even move. I couldn't sit up by myself. So it was a monumental idea. Severely disabled people were being cared for in institutions, not running around in the North Woods. I entered rehab hospital to rebuild my strength. I couldn't lift a single pound with my left arm. It had been shattered and they put it in a cast for six weeks, but it didn't set. So my arm was cut open and a bone reinforced with metal rods and screws. Then they put it in another cast for another six weeks. By the time that cast was removed, my arm was ready, really wasted away. I was told that they'd only could deal with emergencies in the first few weeks because there was so much damage. No one had even realized my arm was broken. So rehab meant a lot of work. I'll share an anecdote. When I first sat in a wheelchair, I lasted about 20 minutes before fainting. When I came to, the physiotherapist told me that because I'd been flat on my back for so long, my body, now vertical, the blood had forgotten how to circulate. She pointed to my feet, which were purple. After months in rehab, I moved into an apartment on my own. I needed to be alone. I had to find out who I was, the me beyond that role I'd been playing. I was a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a friend, but who was I really? I felt that I'd only been playing so far, that I'd been playing fake it till you make it. I simplified my life, dividing it into two parts. The first part dealt with out there, the real world of people and problems. The second part was managing my in here, that is to say, my quest for joy. I used God as a consultant as he supplied me with a constant realization. I have no time to lose. 
I have incredible potential, and more important, my energy is indivisibly linked to the creative God energy. I now saw God as the forces that are maintaining life. There is only one energy, in continuum. From my death experiences, I knew that I am both a physical body and a spirit. Not either or, both. I am energy, and so is everyone and everything else. I saw myself as a drop in the ocean. I'm just as wet, just as salty as the whole ocean, but I'm not the ocean. I'm a single drop. God is the ocean. God is the all in all. I saw God as the intelligence animating nature, but I still had to figure out how to integrate that new way of seeing into my daily life. In the meantime, weak as I was, I tried to overcome the challenges of living alone as a severely disabled man. I'll share an example of what that meant. One day, while transferring from the bathtub to my wheelchair, I slipped and fell to the floor. I wasn't hurt, but it took every ounce of strength I had to get off the floor and back into my wheelchair. I tried and failed again and again and again. It took me about an hour to finally make it, and after, I needed another bath. Aware that my prognosis was for a very short life, I took what little time I thought I had left, and I took it very seriously. I noticed that a lot of people were wasting so much of their time with petty grievances. Many were caught up in all kinds of emotional scenarios and dramas, and they blew things out of proportion. My new life strategy required me to give my life some very serious thought. In those days, before cell phone and text messages, I decided to manage my availability to others. I bought a telephone answering machine to deal with friends and family on my own terms. I'd talk to people, call them back when I was up for it, not pick up when the phone rang. I gave my alone time to contemplation and study. I practiced a sort of disability yoga. According to Wikipedia, contemplation means to profoundly think about something and to think about it often. Because I wanted my inner quest to reveal God's plan in my life, I took every opportunity to find myself alone. I wanted to commune with God's most abundant source of intelligence. So, as soon as my strength allowed it, I visited nearby provincial parks. I'd go two or three times a week, leave my car in a parking lot, and wherever I stopped and rested, I contemplated. In the forest, I'd scan the goings-on. In those quiet moments, waiting for my aching muscles to release their metabolites, I'd note questions that came to mind, and I'd seek out answers later when I got back to town. Alone in those woods, I watched and I wondered. Often lost in my contemplations, sometimes it took me three or four times longer to get back to my car than it took me to get to the original somewhere. I can tell you that there's real fun to be had running down a steep hill in a wheelchair. On a crisp bottom day, the crunch of fallen leaves under my wheels and the wind at my back, there's no better feeling. But remember this, it'll be a hell of a job getting back up that hill at the end of the afternoon when your arms or shoulders are tired. It was during one of those solitary treks that my new career path began. Staring mindlessly into a small clearing at the Oka Provincial Park, I noticed an animal, a sort of marmot as far as I could tell, it came to within three feet of me, which was very unusual. Startled, I thought it was strange that this bushy-haired animal was so oblivious to me. Then I got a distinct feeling that it was there to teach me something. I gave it my full attention. And, at an instant later, I was stunned to see that it was missing half of a front paw. It was a disabled animal. Well, that convinced me even more that I had something to show me so I tuned in with all my antenna to watch it. After a few long moments, it suddenly struck me. I noticed that this animal had absolutely no sense of self-pity or resentment because of its handicap. Quite to the contrary, as it was missing half a paw, it had to work harder than the others just to fill its needs, and it totally accepted its fate. That life lesson from nature was deeply felt. It was illuminating, and it filled me with deep understanding. If I was to have any chance at all for a happy life, I'd have to make every effort myself. Soon I was sharing my findings with anyone I met. Because I had such a positive attitude after surviving a huge ordeal, 
I was invited to speak here and there to company groups and management teams. I passed on my good news. Don't wait until you get stressed out and attract the catastrophe. Don't hit a pole at 70 miles an hour. Get into nature. Relax. Enjoy yourself. Life is short, but invest yourself in it. It's important. People like my message. The first time I was invited back to speak to the same group for a second time, I became dumbfounded. When I asked them if they had done what I suggested the last time, spend more time in nature and learn how to meditate, I was told, uh, no, not really. I came to understand that people don't really do what a coach or a manager or a motivator might suggest. The positive response to a message doesn't necessarily translate itself in an action phase. Hearing an inspirational speaker is like taking a Valium. It lets the audience feel good while they think about it, but they'll soon forget and old habits will come charging. Frustrated, I didn't want to cheer people up with my skills as a speaker, nor did I want to reduce my life-changing experience to a smoke and mirrors show for people to ignore. I stopped accepting invitations to speak and instead concentrated my energy and time on disability issues. My timing was impeccable. It was the very beginning of a social awakening to the needs of disabled people in Quebec, so I gave the movement my voice. For several years, my time was divided between visiting wilderness areas near my home and working on access issues for disabled people. I worked at the local, provincial, national, and even international levels, and a lot of my understanding on the empowerment process was shaped by those experiences. Nature's lessons came from my solitary wanderings in nearby forests, and I used many of the strategies I learned there to defend the rights of universal access in the political arena. The lesson I learned, like how nature favors adaptability, which I caught from that marmot that afternoon, they apply to all of us. Ten years after my accident, in a series of fascinating events, I met Susie, who would become my life partner. She had recently returned to Canada after spending a couple of years working on a CETA project in South America. The Canadian International Development Agency sponsored a project to safeguard a community's watershed in Colombia. She recounted how they taught people to protect the environment by not cutting the trees. Later, I asked her how she got people who are often resistant to learning new things to listen to their ideas. And she told me, Understanding follows experience, so we get them to experience positive alternatives to their harmful agricultural practices. Click. My thinking instantly realigned itself. Rather than try to motivate people, I'd teach the principles of self-motivation. I'd show people why it's in their interest to do their level best at all times. I had to get folks to experience how self-management is in fact self-empowerment. Over the years, Susie has added her magic touch to my training themes, and together we've become experts in heuristic training. Heurism means self-discovery. It's a technique that guides people to learn more quickly, more deeply, and more efficiently. Participants are presented with enough theory to engage them in a corresponding series of activities. By spacing theory and experience, both hemispheres of the brain are engaged in the creation of new neural connections. Expertly animated, the effects of heuristic learning guides participants in a mental shortcut that bypasses resistance and quickens the learning curve. Our lessons from the jungle training themes have helped more than 50,000 participants in major corporations, institutions, and government discover that nature is the world's best leadership school. In this podcast, I describe 10 ideas we can learn from. One, that nature manages continuous change. Two, that nature manages an incredible diversity. Three, there is a ferocious competition. Four, nature favors situational leadership. Five, there's an amazing amount of cooperation in the jungle. Six, there's a stunning amount of creativity. Seven, nature favors extraordinary tenacity. Eight, we can observe an awesome team spirit and communications. Nine, nature has a very efficient use of resources. 
and 10. Nature favors biomimicry or best practices. We learn by copying what works. Nature favors adaptability. Ask yourself if your political leaders are managing their daily agenda to reflect this larger truth. If they're not, well, you had better vote for change. We are living in times of questionable politics in what I call the jungle times. Instead of addressing our common concerns and problems, many leaders are lost in partisan politics, empty-headed ideology, and ineffective strategies. Did you know that we are tracked by trolls every day who try to convince us with some lie or other just to undermine our democracy? Some of them are enemy agents from other countries. Others are domestic enemies. Still others are partisan believers And some are just savvy advertisers who know what strings to pull in order to get us to buy something. Just so you understand, this is an age of lies and fake news. Not to say that we weren't warned. In 1792, a great statesman, Alexander Hamilton, wrote, The truth unquestionably is that the only path to subversion of the Republican system of the country is by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. When a man undisciplined in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, When such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his objective is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Let me just say that POTUS, the President of the United States and leader of the free world, Donald J. Trump, fits the bill. He was caught lying more than 15,000 times in his first thousand days in office. Is that good leadership? Normally, I don't pay too much attention to politics south of the 49th parallel, but Canada is America's largest trading partner. The U.S. has 10 times more people than we do, So strategy suggests that when you're in bed with a gorilla, you should be concerned whenever it decides to roll over. I say Trump is an example of bad leadership because the man is a predator. He preys on the fears and anger of a large percentage of the American electorate who were displaced by corporate greed and mismanagement. With no regard for workers, many companies were acquired, gutted, and sold. Many jobs were shipped away and most worker wages were frozen. People were not prepared for the devastation. The U.S. has a poor social safety net. So Trump campaigned on a promise to save them from the changes in their circumstance. And yet he had absolutely no intention of delivering on his promises. Remember that predators often use deceptive practices to lure their prey. People who might have trouble believing that leaders, both corporate and political, deliberately lie, cheat, and usurp power will benefit from watching an excellent series on Netflix called Dirty Money. Over two seasons, you'll learn all about corruption, fraud, and disruptive practices, all parts and parcel of our daily landscape. One episode, called The Con Man, tells us about the business career of Donald J. Trump, while another, entitled The Slumlord, is all about his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, I'd like Trump supporters to explain how a man who spent the first 72 years of his life putting me first and money as the supreme American value suddenly get a brain transplant wherein he becomes the champion of the common man. He promised to drain the swamp, but instead unleashed a mean-spirited politic that doesn't bode well for democracy. In the way that predators do, Trump divided America against itself. 
To fuel his folly, he even denied that foreign agents are meddling in U.S. elections, preferring the word of Russia's Putin over his own intelligence services, in spite of all the data. He denied real and present dangers like the global climate change, in spite of the science, and the COVID virus, in spite of the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization warnings. He is dismantling the EPA, the consumer protection agencies, the healthcare and education systems, and the other protections, all this while cutting taxes to the very rich. Nature's 4.5 billion years of success is an enviable track record, that's for sure, but it's at risk because the idea of good breaks down with our species. We realize that predators emerge from every social group. In fact, research shows us that human society is made up of three kinds of members, good people, bad people, and stupid people. Professor Carlos Sapoya of the University of Southern California at Davis wrote about what he calls the greatest threat facing humanity today, human stupidity. Sapoya's study explains that good people are defined as they who primarily behave with altruistic self-interest. That is, they have that my brother is myself type of thinking. Bad people primarily behave in a predatory manner, putting their own interest above all else, even if it's to another's detriment, me first. And then stupid people primarily behave to the detriment of others, even if it's not in their own interest to do so. They are like parasites. A stupid person causes the loss of another person or a group of people while gaining nothing for himself even if incurring personal loss. Unfortunately, Sapoya's study determines that we are surrounded by more stupid people than we can imagine. Most interestingly, he also says this, the probability that a person is stupid is independent from any other characteristic. Stupid people can come from the cross-sections of society, from every age group, gender, race, religion, every cultural origin is represented. Stupidity transcends educational and intelligent levels and acquired wealth. Sapoya concludes by saying, a stupid person is the most dangerous person in the world. That's why I'm alarmed about this POTUS, the self-serving Donald J. Trump. He sees himself as a leadership genius, but he is so far off the mark he can't even imagine. He hasn't yet figured out that a border not even the 5,525 miles of it on the Canadian side is a barrier against climate, pollution, or viruses. Borders are just lines on a map, a way to divide and conquer people. They're a very old predatory practice. Sapoya explains that when a bad person acts to the detriment of another, a value has been traded from one to one so that there's no real debt incurred by society as a whole. But when stupid people act, the result is quite different. Stupid people cause a loss to others with no gain to their own account. So society as a whole is poorer from their acts. There is a net loss. I think the timing for a discussion on how nature sees authentic leaders is perfect. Are we meant to be wage slaves who serve the elite few members of society? Or do you think we should manage ourselves as if we're living in the corner of paradise? Before you answer, consider that monkeys in the jungle devote no more than six hours a day to provide for all of theirs and their family needs. Most of that time is spent actually gathering and eating food, while the rest of their day is used to socialize, mate, groom, and rest. And did you know that chimps can live up for 50 years or more? Well, happy days. Folks, I'm proposing an exciting learning agenda on this show. The jungle is the best management school known because of the immediacy and power of its messages. Deadly snakes, spiders, frogs, poisonous plants and mushrooms, all of them telling us that it's a jungle out there. But that jungle also provides us with incredible examples of strategy, creativity, and leadership. The next episode of the Jungle Times podcast is called The Beautiful Planet on Good Governance in Nature. Tune in and I'll share with you the management ideas that apply to complex systems like people, 
families, tribes, and nations. Discover how nature gives value to individual relationships and good governance. On that show, I'll explain strategies that are more than philosophical ways of seeing the world. The word nature comes from the Latin natura, which means essential quality or innate disposition of an examined system. It's essentially how things are made. You know, participants in my lessons from the jungle training often mention that they easily accept the ideas I'm sharing because they make perfect sense. And of course they do. Nature's strategies feel natural, even if many of them are mind-blowingly fascinating because they describe our true creative selves. We are part of nature. We should not be apart from it. In fact, if you take away one thing from this podcast, it should be that nature champions your uniqueness. We've all heard that there have never been two identical snowflakes or two identical leaves on a tree or two identical blades of grass in all of creation. Even identical twins can list their differences. The miracle, though, is that the principles underlying the uniqueness of each thing is universal. Everything in nature is unique. Learning universal rules is like reading your own owner's manual. The reason I call these the jungle times is because we live in an age where very few people exert an awful lot of power over the rest of us. Very few people have acquired more wealth than the rest of the world combined. Billionaires number fewer than 2,500 people, but their wealth is growing at a rate of two and a half billion dollars or 2,500 million dollars every single day, while the poorest half of the world's population is forced into debt as it sees its own worth dwindle. How can we imagine the playing field is equal when the world's 25 richest people have more than $1 trillion in 2018, which is more than half the citizens on this planet, the 3.8 billion poorest people. These figures are from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland in 2019. The report is meant to call attention to the immense gap between the rich and the poor. Similarly, a recent CNN headline screamed, billionaires reaching for the stars while the rest of the world suffers. Friends, you've got to know that they, the billionaires, are not going to change a single thing in a system that has allowed them to acquire so much wealth, even if the imbalance forces most people to suffer. For them, the system is perfect. History shows us, though, that the rich have resisted every proposal to change ever since first iniquities were pointed out. George Orwell wrote a book called The Animal Farm, if you want to find out about it. Just to show you how the pigs are more equal than the rest of us, Donald J. Trump has restructured the U.S. tax code in favor of the wealthy by giving him the biggest tax break in history and by changing the inheritance tax so the richest 1% will save trillions of dollars that they can leave their progeny. The man whose campaign promise was to drain the swamp has made things worse. He is not a good leader. He is not working for the common good. If there's a single thing that my 40 years of contemplating nature tells me is this. The way to be a leader is to empower yourself, then to manage your environment and its resources and care for the needs of others. I know it works because I did exactly that. In spite of my being severely disabled and confined to a wheelchair, I focused the little energy I had to getting to know myself. I wanted to discover what gave me joy. As I sought joy, I found passion from contemplating nature. After that, I visited wilderness areas, taking notes to then teach others what I learned. I volunteered all my spare time to disability issues, bringing my voice to the cause and the tools and syntheses I found in nature to the people I work with. I partnered with Susie 10 years after my accident, and we decided we could spread nature's lessons farther and faster if we worked together. Friends, if you want a happy life, don't wait for a savior. Help to fix the wrongs that need fixing right here in your local environment. And when all the local environments are connected to nature's idea of good, then this whole world becomes paradise found. The world needs creative leaders to emerge now like never before. Tune into my next podcast called The Beautiful Planet on Good Governance in Nature. 
and you'll find out how nature champions creative people. I'll explain how the one becomes the many and how the many are valued by that one. I'll also tell you a little bit more about Susie and my travels and about Mayamu, the jungle reserve we built in a primary rainforest in southern Costa Rica. This is where we did a lot of our research. I look forward to speaking with you next time. If you like this presentation, tell your friends and give it a positive review. If you don't, write and tell me. If you'd like a written transcript of episode one, visit my website, www.thejungletimes.com. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Adios for now. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening. <music>